Welcome to Green and Gold Forever. I'm Eric Drews, broadcasting from Appleton, Wisconsin, and I will be flying solo this evening uh, as we talk about the spectacular game that took place yesterday at Lambeau Field. When it was all said and done, the Packers beat the Bengals for the first time in 19 years, but it took overtime to do it. They won 27-24 to in just a, a thrilling game that provided us lots and lots to talk about. And going into yesterday, we really didn't expect much from that game. We were hopeful that the Packers would be able to overcome their injuries and put down a pretty terrible Cincinnati Bengals team. But the Bengals, uh, after switching offensive coordinators, they were ready for a fight at Lambeau Field, and they led for the entire game until the Packers tied it right before overtime, and then in the Packers' first possession of overtime, were able to win the game with some remarkable plays. So, I ask all of you to bear with me here, as uh, sometimes it can be kind of difficult to do a podcast uh, by yourself, but uh, Chris is in Austin, Texas this evening, so uh, he was going to do the show with me, but he's uh, he's got another life that uh, sends him all around the country, so um, uh, we'll, we'll have Chris back on uh, once he's back in the friendly confines of Wisconsin. Well, yesterday, the friendly confines of Wisconsin looked like they were going to be uh, not friendly at all with the hottest game in the history of Lambeau Field with a 90-degree kickoff. It's still 90 degrees here on Monday in uh, Wisconsin. I, you know, I'm in Appleton, which is just a short drive from Green Bay. So um, that was a strange September game to begin with. But they certainly were a friendly host to the Bengals, at least in the first half. So Cincinnati had scored nine points in their first two games. They marched right down the field and scored. Uh, they got another touchdown two possessions later. And Aaron Rodgers started pretty hot, tied the game 7-7 to to start the game. And then uh, after falling down 14-7, to threw his first pick six since 2009. Now, some might argue that he threw one against Seattle. But this one was not called back. This was for real. And it might have been a bad play on Aaron's part, but the fact that he hasn't thrown a pick six in nine seasons is really remarkable. Uh, but the Packers went into halftime down uh, 21 to seven. Not a lot of people feeling good about the outcome of this game. But then this team just completely flipped the switch. Maybe the Bengals flipped the switch the other way and uh, really made this one a, uh, a memorable occasion and the Packers were able to win this game. So let's get into some of the specifics of that uh, before we talk about some of the milestones and some of the other goings on in the NFL uh, this week. And there certainly was a lot of it. So the defense at first, as we talked about, was pretty poor against that Andy Dalton-led Bengals offense, and, uh, you know, weird haircut and all, Andy Dalton actually played one of his better games in a long time. Even as the Packers slowed him down in the second half, he finished 21 of 27 for 212 yards, two touchdowns, and 124.1 quarterback rating. That has to be one of the higher quarterback ratings in his career. And then the rookie Joe Mixon, 18 attempts for 28 yards. He flashed at times. Uh, he had a total yardage around uh, just over 100. Um, but, you know, that yards per carry is not the greatest. But certainly there's a chance that he might uh, be able to have a nice career for the Bengals. But the defense, going back to them, after struggling in the first half and uh, giving up 301 total yards, which is not terrible, but only 203 yards did they give up to the Bengals in the second half in overtime. Um, really held them uh, very much in check after that first drive and only gave up three points. The, the Bengals missed a field goal on a short field that they were given after a return, but really solid job by the defense that was missing Mike Daniels, was missing Nick Perry, Devon House was out, 
Jake Ryan got hurt at some point last week that I, I didn't even realize, and then Kendrell Bryce was out. So a lot of young faces that really played a big role, and none bigger than rookie Josh Jones, who people have been talking about for quite a while. Almost immediately in training camp, there was a buzz around this guy, and that you know that that happens to a few people in training camp but with a high pick you're always hopeful that that means there's potentially a a budding star in the making and if yesterday was any indication then Josh Jones could be a really fun player to watch he had 12 tackles two sacks two hurries three tackles for losses he had a big uh, uh incredible hulk dance that made uh, Tony Romo crack up so i guess he's got that going for him as well but it was really nice to see a guy like him step up uh, and and really contribute when you were missing so many key playmakers. And uh, him really coming through. And then also Kevin King, um, or I'm sorry, Kyle, Kyle King. Kevin King? Kevin King really came through too, um, to a degree. I mean, he getting baptized by fire last week he got Julio Jones this week he got AJ Green and while AJ Green did go over 100 yards played pretty well um I think Kevin King showed that he might have the potential as well so it looks like Ted's first two picks might pay off and the defense just a real good hustle effort Kenny Clark was around the ball quite a bit Clay Matthews didn't get his record-breaking sack to break KGB's franchise record but he got close a few times uh in fact I think Ahmad Brooks got to Andy Dalton in the first half right before Clay Matthews did and you could kind of see Clay with kind of a joking frustration while he was laying on the ground but um I'm sure that'll be coming but it was nice to see Ahmad Brooks get in there and really kind of a a good effort and not a great test by any means. I don't think because of switching coordinators that the Bengals are going to be fixed and uh, for them to play so pathetically against two iffy opponents uh, certainly doesn't bode too well for their future and uh, doesn't provide a great test for the Packers, I don't think. But it, it was good to see them at least recover after a really tough first half and uh, learning to integrate some of those new pieces that unfortunately with Mike Daniels and, and with House and some of the, and Nick Perry now having surgery on his hand once again, I mean, geez, it's, this team is so snake-bitten, so they're going to have to rely on some of these guys uh, going forward. Luckily with the short week, they can uh, hopefully get some people healthy after playing the Bears. Uh, the offense, similarly, had a Jekyll and Hyde performance. They started hot with a 60-yard touchdown drive the first time they got the ball, then followed with 46 yards on the next five drives. 45 of those yards came on the drive that ended in the pick six. So just an abysmal first half for the offense behind that patchwork offensive line. But then in the second half, Aaron Rodgers really kind of willed that offense and showed why he is in the running as the greatest quarterback of all time. 283 yards on the next six drives, including overtime, and it led to 20 points. And Aaron on that last drive was phenomenal. He he was, again, he's he, kind of manipulating some of the rules, which is, is fine if you can make them work. I would like to see the offense work better without needing some of those things. But, hey, take it if you can get it. And uh, Aaron put together a pretty solid performance when it was all said and done. Uh, 28 for 42, or 28 to 42, 313 yards, three touchdowns, an interception. He was sacked six times, five of which in the first half. And I can't imagine what it's like to try to play when you were sacked five times in the first half. And for him to stay in there, keep throwing, you had not much of a running game to speak of. So for him to keep throwing and, uh, and, and really bring this team back was something special. Uh, he got some help from 
Uh, Devontae Adams, he had three catches for 60 yards, including a big 41-yard catch. Uh, Lance Kendricks had a 51-yard catch on that first drive. And then Geronimo Allison, the star of the game, six catches, 122 yards, including that 72-yard haul-in in overtime that set up the game-winning field goal. So lots of exciting things for the Green Bay Packers. And Aaron Rodgers right now, He's kind of struggled. He had the rough uh, start in Seattle and then the good second half. He had the all-around rough performance with that makeshift offensive line against the Falcons. And then the same story yesterday where he had a rough first half and then really recovered in the second half. But he's got 967 yards through three games. If you project that over the course of 16, that's nearly 5,200 yards, which would blow away his previous high of 2011 when he had 4,600 yards. So uh, his 322 yards per game is is the highest he's ever had in his career. However, right now he's got, already been sacked 13 times. So um, if I pull out the math real quick, He's on pace for getting sacked 69 times, which would get close to David Carr territory in the uh, 2002 expansion Houston Texans season. So they have to shore up that line. And then on the radio on the way home, I hear that perhaps Kyle Murphy is injured for uh, a foot injury. So I don't know what his future is. But And Brian Bulaga re-aggravated his left ankle. So they signed a, a guy who started a little bit last year for the Cardinals when they were having their own injury woes on the offensive line. So clearly Ted is reaching into the bottom of the barrel to just find bodies that can play offensive line for the Packers. Oh, man, I just I, I don't understand how these guys can keep getting injured. And again, it's, it's not anybody's fault, but even listening to the Channel 5 uh, Green Bay pregame show yesterday, they asked George Kuntz about these injuries, and even he was baffled. A guy who's played in the NFL has fought through his own injuries, and he said an injury list this long, I mean, if it were week 13 – that would be one thing, but to have an injury list a mile long when it's week three is incredibly uh, frustrating, and it makes me think back to the preseason idea where they're so cautious with guys in the preseason, and part of me thinks, well, if everybody's going to get hurt as soon as they start playing, certainly you don't want to lose them in meaningless games, but how much does that play into it that perhaps guys aren't into football shape or, or whatnot? I know the players would probably tell me I'm completely crazy, and that could very well be the case. But it's just so baffling that not just the Packers, but teams across the entire NFL can't seem to stay healthy. And I don't know what it is. And I guess maybe the silver lining is the fact that none of the starters play in the preseason, so these guys that immediately have to start ended up playing almost four full games in the exhibition season. So some of these guys have some experience under their belt. But thank goodness they signed Jari Evans, who maybe is not what he once was, but at least he's a veteran presence in there and a healthy body, which might be the most important thing of all. But the grand scheme of things is a nice breakout performance for Geronimo Allison. Randall Cobb sounds like he might be injured for a while, so maybe it's Allison's time to shine. Devontae Adams has been quiet this year, but has been solid um, from from the opportunities he's had. He looks like he's still building upon the great season that he had last year. And uh, Jordy Nelson is Jordy Nelson, uh, catching another couple touchdown passes. And with that in mind, let's talk about some of the milestones that were broken yesterday, both uh, good and bad. So Rodgers, coming into yesterday, had an 0-7 overtime record. And from what people were saying, that's like the worst quarterback record in the history of overtime. However, in Rodgers' defense, Yesterday was only the fourth time in his eight career overtime games where he actually touched the ball in the extra period. 
So it's hard to blame him too much for some of those woes. I mean, he had the the fumble in Arizona in 2009. Uh, in the 2010 season, they actually lost back-to-back overtime games to the lowly Redskins and Dolphins, and Rodgers had the ball in both of those. But one, he got a concussion on the end of the game, and the other one he was playing coming off of a concussion. So you, you wonder how much that affected things. But either way, that monkey is off Aaron Rodgers' back. And for McCarthy, it's even more of a monkey that he removed because this win ended a nine-game winless streak for the Packers and for Mike McCarthy in particular. Their last overtime win was the famous 2007 Monday Night Football game against Denver when Brett Favre hit Greg Jennings for an 82-yard touchdown on the first play from scrimmage in overtime. Uh, Since then, they've been... 0-8-1 0-8-1 in that period in overtime. The one was that epic comeback when Matt Flynn replaced Scott Tolzien in November of 2013 and tied the Vikings, which if you read uh, the article on the Green and Gold Forever Podbean page, that game would have been a victory with the modern 10-minute overtime rules. But as it stands, it was a tie. And from what I could see, the nine-game winless streak in the playoffs is far and away the longest overtime winless streak for a coach in the history of the NFL. And if you add the tie and just have it be a losing streak, prior to the tie from the 2008 um, overtime loss in the NFC Championship game, up until that game in um, that previously mentioned Miami loss in the 2010 season, McCarthy had a six-game straight-up losing streak in overtime, and that also was an NFL record. Um, he was alone at number six. The other ones at number five were um, Ron Earhart of the New England Patriots in the 70s and 80s. Also, Andy Reid had a five-game losing streak in overtime games in his from 2005 to 2013. So that's four games in Philadelphia, one in Kansas City. And then Dan Reeves had a five-game winless streak that uh, went from after the NFC title game um, in 1998. That's, of course, they won that game for the Falcons in overtime. But then after that, from 99 through 2002, they had five consecutive winless um, overtime games. The Packers, though, as crazy as it sounds, to have nine straight winless forays in overtime is not the record. Uh, luckily, they never got a chance to have that record. They would have potentially, or they would have tied it yesterday had they lost to the Bengals. The record is the previously mentioned Patriots, who lost 10 straight overtime games from 1977 to 1987. And then in 1988, they got a 10-7 win over the lowly Buccaneers in Vinny Testaverde's rookie year. So that was a the record-setting streak, except that was three different coaches. That was one game by Chuck Fairbanks in 1977, five by Ron Earhart, as I mentioned, and then Raymond Berry, who actually was a pretty good coach for the Patriots, took them to the Super Bowl and took them to the playoffs one other time. He had four consecutive playoff losses at the tail end of that. So McCarthy and the Packers franchise escaped that little bit of infamy, but uh, let's be honest, there's probably nobody who knows about that um, other than us now here on uh, Green and Gold Forever. So um, good for the Packers. They have now won an overtime game for the first time in almost 10 real years, which 
is hard to believe with as much success as this team has had. Uh, Some other notable streaks, the San Diego Chargers are the third most all-time. They lost eight straight from 1990 to 2001. They finally broke that streak in 2002 when uh, LT beat the Raiders on a big-time touchdown run in a game that's probably not too famous, but is one I vividly remember from 2002 when uh, San Diego had their 6-1 start under Schottenheimer before fading away like the Chargers tend to do in the late season. And then Houston actually lost their six uh, first six overtime games in the Texans franchise history. So, uh, And then the Raiders lost six straight with a whole bunch of different coaches in the 90s. So that is good for the Packers. They no longer have to hear about how they can't win in overtime. Uh, Aaron Rodgers yesterday pulled away from John Elway. He had gone for 300 touchdown passes against the Atlanta Falcons and was in a tie for 10th place all time with John Elway. I was going to write an article about some of the cool things about the Packers franchise history as a dominant passing team. Um, And then I was going to do the what if Sterling Sharp. I, I teased that at the end of the show last week. So that's what I get for teasing things. Of course, things would not go my way. The what if should have been, what if my computer would stop working and the replacement stopped working as well um yeah i bought it recently bought a new hp laptop and apparently there's a known issue that i learned about after purchasing the computer that hp products and windows 10 are not working very well together and i don't know if it was something at the factory level or something that happened in my short use of it but essentially the hard drive became corrupted and couldn't be used anymore they the people at best buy were great to me and they replaced it, and uh, then that computer is now not working very well. So I lost a lot of the research I was going to do for this, and then I started kind of running out of time. So I promise, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do about the 300 touchdowns. Aaron's already got 303, so I don't know if anybody cares about that blog anymore. And quite frankly, I, I was trying to find some things that were more interesting than the things I had posted on Twitter, and was coming up a little bit short. So I doubt we'll ever see that article on the website, but I promise, especially to David Perillo, not Perillo, Forillo. I was thinking of Justin Perillo, the old, or Dustin. I cannot remember anybody's name. But uh, David, I promise you um, that we're going to get to that Sterling Sharp uh, article in the near future. This time, I'm not going to be stupid enough to promise an exact date. But um, definitely, that's going to be our next what if. Um, However, going all the way back after that useless detour that I just took you on, Aaron Rodgers now has 303 touchdown passes, uh, passing John Elway for sole possession of 10th place on the all-time touchdown pass list. And interestingly enough, the guy in front of him is Ben Roethlisberger. Rodgers is only three behind Roethlisberger, so he has a potential to pass him this season and become in ninth place all-time. And if he has a really good season and Phillip Rivers has a really bad season, he could potentially pass Phillip Rivers, although right now he's 15 behind him. And then Eli, who uh, is 21 ahead of Aaron Rodgers, um, he would have to have an epically bad season. And Aaron Rodgers would have to have like a 2011 season uh, production-wise to catch him. But it's interesting how he's run down the class of 2004 as a member of a class of 2005, and they, Roethlisberger and Manning, got three years more starting than Aaron Rodgers did, and Phillip Rivers got, no, I take that back, four years. Yeah, uh, four, five, six, seven. So Roethlisberger and Manning got a four-year head start on Aaron Rodgers, and Phillip Rivers got a two-year head start on Aaron Rodgers, and he still has been able to to kind of run those guys down and get into some rarefied air as far as touchdown passes are concerned. 
Here is the interesting part I wanted to talk about. So Aaron Rodgers' touchdowns per per start is far and away the highest of all time. His is almost 2.2 touchdowns per start. Next closest is Peyton Manning with 2.03 touchdowns per start. They're they're really the only guys in the entire history of the NFL that have more. Well, Drew Brees has about two. So those are the three guys that have two or more touchdowns per start in their career. So what does that mean as far as Aaron Rodgers' outside shot at getting to Peyton Manning's record of 539 touchdown passes. So Rodgers is 236 behind him. If he can continue on that 2.2 touchdowns per game pace, he needs 107.49 more games to catch Peyton Manning, which is about seven complete seasons, a little less than that. So in the latter part of the seventh season uh, from now. So I guess you could say this year plus six more. And Aaron Rodgers, if he maintains his touchdowns per game average, will reach the Peyton Manning mark of 535. Now, the question will be, will Peyton Manning still be the all-time record holder six years from now or seven years from now with Tom Brady and Drew Brees right on his uh, tail? So right now, Brees is 68 touchdowns behind Tom Brady, or I'm sorry, behind Peyton Manning, and Tom Brady is 75 behind. So by this mark... Drew Brees will need about 34 more games, and Tom Brady will need about 39 more games. So that's over two seasons for Brees and over two seasons for Tom Brady. So at the end of potentially, let's see, the 2019 season, if those two guys maintain their their career averages for touchdowns per game, Brees and Brady could be in the running to break the record. End of 2019. The way that, I mean, Tom Brady played great yesterday, although Houston gave him a lot of help. The way that Breeze has played this year, and with the potential that, you know, if the Saints have another 7-9 and season, that maybe the Saints finally say they've had enough of Sean Payton, and then maybe the Saints want to re- restart everything. You wonder if either of those guys are going to play that long. And I think Brady played well yesterday, but he's shown flashes of being a 40-year-old. It just seems unreasonable that Tom Brady at 42 years old will A, be still playing, and B, still be throwing two touchdowns a game at his average for his entire career. And the same goes for Breeze, who will be about, I think, 40 or 41 by then. So Rodgers, of course, in six years will be about that same 40, 41 years old. So I doubt that Rodgers is going to get to 539, but for a guy who didn't start starting until he was already 25 years old, that's pretty remarkable that he's even within shouting distance of that record. So that's something to kind of keep an eye on. As far as if Peyton Manning's record doesn't fall to Drew Brees or Tom Brady, um, I don't really know if there's anybody reasonably in the running. So maybe Andrew Luck, um, I don't have it in front of me, so I forget how old Luck is, but he needs about 13 and a half more seasons of his current level of output to reach Peyton Manning's mark. Um, Matthew Stafford needs 12 and a half seasons of his current output to reach Peyton Manning's mark, and Matt Ryan needs 11 seasons uh, at his current output to reach that mark. So... Those seem like a bit of a stretch for any of those three guys to be able to play that long. I believe Matthew Stafford's only like 29 years old. So he put, well, even though then, then that's what, 40, 41 or 42. So that's going to be difficult. I want to see what Andrew Luck, uh, how old he is, because 
he, I believe, started pretty young. So there's a chance that he has um, enough years left in front of him. But again, he's already battling a ton of injury issues. And Andrew Luck is, oh, he's already 28 years old. So if he needs 13 and a half seasons, I don't think that's going to happen. So it'll be interesting to see. At first, it with Brady and Breeze and Rodgers, right behind Manning, and Manning breaking it so soon after Brett Favre had broken the record, and Favre breaking it only 12 years after Marino had broken it, it seemed like this would be a record with our crazy passing league that would continually fall, but man, I mean, Peyton Manning, say what you will about him, was incredibly prolific, and he put that record to a point where it might be out of reach for the foreseeable future, but you know, Drew Brees is going to keep playing. He don't care if he goes 1-15 and every year if he's got a chance to get some more records. And um, It'll be interesting to see what happens with Brady because you wonder, playing with Bill Belichick, if A, Belichick will retire, or if B, uh, Brady has a few more games like he had in the first two weeks of the year, uh, if they won't consider just going with somebody else. Or I guess Brady was pretty good against the Saints, but uh, I, I grade the Saints games on a curve. Okay, the other milestone yesterday that I wanted to bring up, which is also fun to get into some of this conversation, Jordy Nelson with two touchdown receptions, the last of which being the game-tying reception with 16 seconds left. And, man, if that's just... We're talking about Rodgers and Nelson. That was quintessential Rodgers and Nelson. Both of those drives, or both of those touchdowns, quite frankly. The first was... Rodgers forcing the action, extending the play, him and Jordy being perfectly in sync, and as he takes a step towards the the end zone, Jordy's defender drifts away, and Jordy knows exactly what to do. Rodgers throws a perfect strike, and you get a touchdown. And then the second play, Rodgers with an absolutely phenomenal throw out of the past the fingertips of the Bengals defender, and Jordy Nelson making an incredible diving catch while keeping a knee in bounds. That really is, those two plays, is exactly what the Rodgers to Nelson connection has been all about. But Jordy Nelson, yesterday, with those two touchdown catches, is up to 66 career touchdown catches, which passes Sterling Sharp for second most in Packer history. And what's interesting here is that Sterling Sharp was able to do his 65 touchdown catches in just seven seasons, and this is um, 10 seasons since Jordy Nelson has been in the NFL. Of course, he missed all of 2015 with that ACL injury and also missed, I think, six games of the 2012 season with an injury. But even more impressive is the fact that Jordy Nelson was pretty much a reserve player of like Geronimo Allison levels for the first three years because we had Donald Driver, Jordy Nelson, James Jones. We had some good players at tight end. So Jordy Nelson really didn't get to be the starting guy until his fourth season in 2011 and has exploded ever since statistically. So Sterling Sharp caught 65 touchdown passes in 112 games, but he started every single one of those games. Jordy Nelson has only started, he's played 124 games, but he's only started 76. So Jordy had six touchdowns in his first 45 games, but has had 60 in his last 75, which is much more productive than even Sterling Sharp, which... That's certainly something I haven't appreciated about Jordy Nelson. I, I think everybody likes Jordy and thinks he's a great player, but when I think of just statistical juggernauts that's scoring touchdowns and producing yards at an just an uncomparable, unreplicatable play, uh, pace, Sterling Sharp is that guy that comes to mind for the Packers. 
And for Jordy to actually have outproduced him in a game-by-game basis in the last 79 games is really something to behold. And I already had a really high opinion of Jordy, but now it's even higher for me. And I wanted to take a look at his chances of moving up the ranks and potentially being a Hall of Famer. Yesterday, by reaching 66 touchdowns, Jordy Nelson is now tied for 50th on the all-time receiving touchdown list uh, by getting number 66. Yesterday, in addition to Sterling Sharp, he passed Redskins great Gary Clark, former Ram and Redskin Henry Ellard, uh, Michael Irvin, obviously of the Dallas Cowboys, Charlie Charlie Joyner, who's a Hall of Fame wide receiver, played many years with Dan Fouts and the Chargers, Bobby Mitchell, the great wide receiver of the Browns and Redskins, Sonny Randall, who admittedly I'd never heard of, but he uh, played for the Cardinals in the 1960s. Uh, With all due respect to Sonny, that's perhaps why I didn't hear of him, because the Cardinals are very much an afterthought in the 1960s. And he momentarily passed Jason Witten, who plays tonight and has 65 touchdown passes. So I suggest, or I, or I suspect those two guys are going to perhaps pass each other a few more times in the coming weeks. And now, by getting 66, he's tied with uh, St. Louis Cardinals great Roy Green, Derek Mason of the Titans and Ravens, Santana Moss of the Redskins and Jets, Jimmy Orr, primarily of the Baltimore Colts in the 1960s. So those are some more notable names, and maybe you already put Jordy Nelson in that kind of company. But now I wanted to look at Jordy Nelson's chances for the Hall of Fame. So, as I said, if you just take his post-2011 pace when he became a starter, he has been catching .76 touchdowns per game. That is an incredibly high number. So, that if that can continue, which I don't suspect it will... Um, Pro football out, or football outsiders say that in their history they've seen, and obviously individuals break these general rules all the time, but they say that receivers tend to peak out at around 31 years old. So Jordy Nelson is 32 years old, but this year he's already got three touchdown catches and doesn't show any signs of slowing down. But I wanted to see if Jordy Nelson actually had a legitimate shot at one day becoming a Hall of Famer, and that 2000 post 2011 pace of 0.76 touchdowns per game even outproduces the great Don Hudson who's number 1 on the Packers all-time list. Hudson had 99 touchdown catches in 166 games. So that is a pace of about 6.6 touchdowns per game. So Jordy is even outproducing the great Don Hudson since 2009 or 2011 in terms of touchdowns. So I wanted to look at how many games it would take Jordy Nelson to get to 99 touchdowns and tie Don Hudson. So Jordy would need, at his post-2011 pace, a .76 touchdowns per game, he would need need about 44 games to break Hudson's record. So that would be maintaining his incredible pace that is all of this season, all of next year, and all of the year after that. Um, Would need 44 more games to get 34 more touchdowns. So I don't know if he's going to do that because, as we saw with Donald Driver, that receiving production can go down really fast. And this would be something for the football perspective or football outsiders guys to answer. And I'm sure they have in some of their great blog posts, but to me, it seems like receiving touchdowns are a little bit random. Uh, unless you're talking about your super elite guys, it seems like 
touchdown totals can really vary. So I don't know if you can expect Jordy to continue this pace. However, let's say he gets to 99. There is nobody that's at 100 receiving touchdowns that either isn't in the Hall of Fame or in serious consideration for the Hall of Fame. So if he got to even 85, which would not be unreasonable at all, that's another, what, 19 touchdowns in his career. So Heinz Ward is at 85, and he's kind of considered a fringe Hall of Famer. He's tied at 15th all-time with Hall of Famers Lance Allworth and Paul Warfield, but they're from a different era. Everyone above Heinz Ward at 85 is in the Hall of Fame, except for Isaac Bruce with 91 catches, uh, touchdown catches, Larry Fitzgerald with 104, Tony Gonzalez at 111, Antonio Gates with 112, Terrell Owens at 153, and Randy Moss at 156. I would say Gonzalez... Owens and Moss are locks for the Hall of Fame eventually. I would imagine Gates probably gets in, but he's going to have to wait a while. I would think Fitzgerald probably is going to get in at some point. Isaac Bruce is a tough one. I'm not quite sure what's going to happen with him, but he certainly has a legitimate shot. If you go below Heinz Ward at 84 and below, then you get at 84 Mark Clayton, Irving Fryer, Tommy McDonald, Andre Risen. At 83, you have Calvin Johnson, so that might change things. And then at 82, you got Anquan Bolden, Brandon Marshall, Reggie Wayne. Those guys, all three of them, are kind of borderline Hall of Famers. And then at 81, you have Steve Smith. So, you know, all of those guys. Steve Smith, I think, has a good shot at the Hall of Fame. Calvin Johnson does, too, because they were just so dominant. But most of those guys at that 84 and below are guys like Mark Clayton and Irving Fryer, who are tremendous players, but you wouldn't consider Hall of Famers. And then everybody above that level are guys who got serious chops to be in the Hall of Fame. So the thing that I'm getting around to, I know I'm trying to tell myself not to use so many statistics on this podcast because even me, when I'm editing or listening back to these, have a hard time following myself when I talk so much stats. But hell, it's just me here today, so what the heck else am I going to talk about? So there's a lot of stats for you. You might have to pause. Um, I'll link the lists of the top um, receiving yardage, or I'm sorry, the receiving touchdown um accumulators. I set myself up weird for a sentence there, and then I couldn't figure out how to get out of it. The list of the all-time list of touchdown receptions and the all-time list of passing touchdowns. I will link both of those in the description on the Podbean page. So as I'm talking my statistical gobbledygook, you at least maybe will have an easier chance at uh, making sense of all this. So long story short, Jordy Nelson is having a phenomenal career. He's producing touchdowns at a rate rarely seen in the NFL and certainly rarely seen for the Green Bay Packers and has a realistic shot if he can play at his 2016-2014 level for another three years, and especially if the Packers got another championship. He's got an outside shot at becoming a Hall of Famer, and how cool would that be? Jordy's a phenomenal guy. He's been one of my favorite players ever to watch. Um, so for a guy who really reminds me a lot of you know some of the great players like Mark Chimura and uh, Dave Casper and you know even Jeff Query, uh, for him to potentially be a Hall of Famer is something very exciting. Okay, so we talked a lot about that stuff. Uh, just some other notes from the game that I had written down. I think the Packers... I've been making good with a lot of the injuries they have, but one of the concerning things is that their running game is atrocious right now. Ty Montgomery's getting three yards a carry, but perhaps more alarming is he has a season long of eight yards. That's his longest run of the year, and that's not going to get it done. 
and I know they've had a lot of problems on the offensive line, but to not be able to get one run longer than eight yards is incredibly concerning, especially for a guy like Ty Montgomery, who's got a lot of speed. And if you look behind him, I don't think there's any help coming. Jamal Williams has the reputation of falling forward, but to me, that's something you say about a guy who doesn't really have much else to offer. I mean, Emmett Smith fell forward. Did you ever hear people say the first thing about Emmett Smith that's good is that he fell forward? I don't think so. So, I mean, and obviously not everybody has to be Emmett Smith to be effective, but if falling forward is the best you have, that's the same thing they said about James Starks. That doesn't mean you have a whole lot to offer the team in terms of a starting running back position. And they haven't gotten a lot of opportunities, the the other rookie running backs as well, but I rarely have seen running backs in the history of the NFL that can't do anything and eventually become successful starters. And you've had your late bloomers. Amon Green was one. Dorsey Levins was one. Um, I guess Mark Ingram of the Saints, you know, he's not setting the world on fire, but he certainly can contribute. He was a bit of a late bloomer, uh, but again, he wasn't a guy from, you know, a sixth round pick or anything. He was the Heisman Trophy winner. So maybe there was some expectation that you got to stick with this guy and let him figure it out. But you see guys like Eddie Lacy and Jordan Howard and Devontae Freeman and Tevin Coleman in Atlanta, um, even, you know, Adrian Peterson, and of course, Kareem Hunt out in Kansas City, basically all those Kansas City running backs, they were pretty much good from the moment they set foot on an NFL field. So I'm not suddenly expecting Jamal Williams or any of these guys to just become great, great players. The thing that I'm sort of holding out hope for is that Eddie Lacy once again didn't play yesterday. I don't believe he was injured. He was a healthy scratch in week two. So far, his appearance at Lambeau Field in week one is the only game action he's gotten. So I don't know if he's got a weight problem or an attitude problem or if they're just trying to give other guys an opportunity. But I think he's a real risk to be cut at midseason or even imminently. And if that were the case, I think the Packers should take a chance and bring him back. He was a popular guy in the locker room. He seemed to work here. And we've seen that with a lot of guys that have played for Mike McCarthy and a lot of these Ted Thompson guys. They sign these contracts, they go elsewhere, and it just doesn't seem to work out. And then they come back and it just fits like a glove. It's just something that is about this place that seems to work. And we saw that with James Jones. Um, you've seen that with some of those other offensive stars through the years. Not, usually they didn't come back to their old form, but they got back Ryan Grant, and he was certainly helpful in the line. And even if Eddie Lacy could come back and be like a 2012 Ryan Grant um, or a 2011 Ryan Grant, I think that would certainly provide a, a big boost to this team. And personally, I just I like Eddie Lacy, and I spent like $100 on his jersey a couple years ago, so I want to be able to wear it again. So hopefully the Seahawks cut him and we can get Eddie Lacy here. And we got fried cheese curds, so who could who could pass that up? That's better than fish. That's ugh. Fish versus fried cheese curds? Come on. Not even close. Other action around the NFL. So... Detroit lost the most controversial game of yesterday. Um, I'm assuming that anybody who's listening to this podcast already saw it. If you didn't, for whatever chance, the Lions were marching down the field, down 30-26. to They threw to Golden Tate with eight seconds left. He dove for the goal line, looked from the hard camera like he made it, and then they showed the replay and apparently determined that his left knee had hit down before the ball had crossed the plane. And in a rule that... I did not realize existed, but once they explained, made sense that because they had no timeouts and there was eight seconds left, that necessitated a 10-second runoff in the same manner that if you would have committed a, a false start penalty or some sort of running clock 
uh, penalty that the game was over because of the 10-second runoff. They only had eight seconds left. And so Detroit lost in one of the more heartbreaking fashions that I ever recall seeing. And, of course, that could only happen to the Detroit Lions. And so I'm happy that it happened because I think the Packers, it's nice for the Packers to have that gut check against Cincinnati, come out on top, and now be tied for the division lead. But I felt really bad for the Detroit Lions, I guess, as much uh, sorrow and uh, sympathy as I'm possibly able of feeling for the Detroit Lions. But yeah, that's a that's a really rough way to lose a football game. And the Vikings responded with Case Keenum looking phenomenal. And so far, their bad quarterbacks when they played at home have looked really good so far this year. So Minnesota looks like they might be around for a while this season. And they got a 2-1 and start. They had a rough game against Pittsburgh. Sounds like Teddy Bridgewater might practice in three weeks. They thought for a, for a while last week that Sam Bradford might have to have surgery again on his knee, but it looks like it's just like a bone bruise or something, which... <laughs> you know, these guys are infinitely tougher than I am, but I always find it funny when you got to go talk to Dr. Andrews and then it ends up being a bone bruise. It feels a little bit like a kid who's like, I broke my arm. And then it's, it's just a, a scratch or something, but I, especially with uh, Sam Bradford's injury history, but I'm sure it was very painful. And, uh, for him personally, I guess that's good that he is able to come back relatively soon. Uh, Still not that worried about the Vikings or the Lions. They always seem to start hot and then fade. The Vikings, every year, I mean, 2012 and 2016 and even going back to 2003, 2004, they always start out white hot and then fade towards the end. So until they can put it together for the whole season, I'm not quite yet convinced. Also around the league, Bill O'Brien. I said on Twitter that I called him a coward, and I guess (laughs) that's a little strong, but he had a fourth and one up 33 to 28, and he didn't go for it. And they were deep within New England territory, and I understand that if you miss it, you could still lose on a field goal, but you're not playing Jacksonville at home, man. You're at Foxborough against the New England Patriots. Like, have some guts and try to win the game right then and there instead of kicking another field goal. So that's... uh, I'm uh, not a big fan in that regard. Or I'm sorry, they're up 30 to 28. So they went up 33 to 28 so they could get the touchdown. So it makes sense from the charts, but come on. You know, this is a young team with a young quarterback that has hung tight, come from behind several times in that game to take the lead against the Patriots and Foxborough. Go for the kill, man. That I'll, I'll, I don't understand that. And then Pittsburgh, of course, going back to the division, lose to the Chicago Bears after getting bailed out with one of the most bizarre plays you'll ever see at the end of the half, where the Bears blocked the field goal, they ran it all the way down, and the the guy, Cooper, I think was, eased up at the end, and the kicker caught him, stripped him of the ball, and due to the Pittsburgh kicker batting it out of the back of the end zone, the Bears were lucky that they got a field goal instead of nothing, but that game went to overtime, and then Jordan Howard ran in a touchdown, Ran in a touchdown. Just makes me sound like I don't know anything. Well, he, he took the ball and he uh, he ran ran in her in there, but uh, they beat Pittsburgh, and it's kind of shocking. But Pittsburgh seems to be the Packers of the AFC, where games you expect them to lose, they win, and games that you expect them to coast, they lose. So I think that's just another case of early season uh, jitters. And uh, now we're left with only Kansas City and Atlanta as the undefeated teams in the NFL. So it seems like um, in the last couple of years, it's just none of these teams can build up any momentum coming out of the preseason. So that's that's very interesting. Going back to the Packer game, um, I wanted to talk about Tony Romo, which I had here um, in my 
my, I guess my notes are a little mismatched, but Tony Romo's awesome as a commentator. And I was hopeful that he would be good, but he's such a breath of fresh air. And as we mentioned last week with Chris, that he just seems to enjoy watching football. And that's something that not all the announcers have. And that's the appeal of John Gruden is he just enjoys watching a football game and seems to be a little bit in awe that he gets to go to these places and get paid to watch and comment on football, which, you know, I've just got a rinky dink podcast, but isn't this all that any of us could ever dream of is getting paid to talk about football. And uh, that certainly that special opportunity is not lost on Tony Romo. He does have this habit of predicting plays before the game or before the the snap. And the fun thing is he's almost always right. But I wonder if there's going to come a time where the people at CBS tell him to stop doing that or maybe lay off on it. Personally, I I think it's fine provided that he's given time to explain it. And yesterday they did a good job with that. They had a a play on third and three where the Bengals try to run out of the shotgun and it was stuffed by the Packers. And Romo had per- correctly predicted it before the snap. And when Jim Nance asked him why, he was able to succinctly explain, well, I counted the number of people in the box. And uh, usually if it's six, you pass. And if it's five, you run. And so there were five. And so I played the percentages. And that is something that you don't hear very much. And there are so many quarterbacks that are calling games now, and you don't get some of that stuff that is really things you would have missed out uh, if you didn't play in the NFL or didn't play at a high level in uh, in football or haven't played football in an organized capacity for a long, long time. So hopefully they let Romo continue to do that and explain why he expected what he expected. Um, it's certainly better than saying, oh, whoa, what a throw, man. You don't see that every day. And then, of course, Tony Romo just almost a Madden level of giddy watching Aaron Rodgers come back. So, of course, being a Packers homer, um, that was fun. Although, somebody should tell Tony Romo that the Packers were not playing the Susanna Hoff band of the 1980s, the Bengals. They were playing the Bengals. Uh, so, uh, they should tell him that. Although... Part of me, being a Wisconsin guy that has my own uh, Wisconsin-y drawl, I appreciated hearing the Wisconsin accent on a nationally televised game. So hopefully you all liked Romo too because they're coming right back to Lambeau Field on Thursday to do Packers-Bears. I myself am excited. I think they're quickly becoming one of the best teams uh, in NFL broadcasting. Phil Simms, though, now is in the studio for NFL Today, and it's just I can't quite get the vibe between him and Boomer Esiason, but... It sort of feels like they like giving each other a hard time, but it seems a little bit more malicious than playful at times. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's just a weird dynamic, and, and maybe they'll all catch on. But right now, it's it seems like two grumpy old quarterbacks that, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's just, it's, it's weird. Um, we had another London game yesterday, which, of course, had its own uh, interesting things. But I'll say that the London stream was great. It I, I used the Yahoo app on a Roku and it streamed perfectly. No interruptions through the game, looked like perfect HD. And I agree that one of the things that are, is hurting the NFL right now is complete oversaturation. But if they insist upon still playing in England and still oversaturating us with these 830 games, I guess I can live with it provided they keep giving us teams that nobody really cares about. That game was awful. 
Joe Flacco had 28 yards on 18 pass attempts. That has to be one of the worst performances in the history of football. The Jaguars, who stink, just destroyed the Ravens, which was funny that they were talking up the Ravens as having this great, great defense because they had beaten the Bengals and the Browns. And then, of course, Jacksonville, of all teams, just takes them to the woodshed. But if they're going to stick these bad teams at 8.30 in the morning, and you can watch them if you wish, but if you don't care to, you're not missing anything, I can live with it and uh, I guess just find a balance. I, I don't want Packers, Patriots, or you know a division round game or a division game over in London early in the early in the day. So uh, that's that. Um, other than that, you know we're we're kind of running out of time here. Um, well, it's a podcast. I can talk as long as I want, but how long do you just want to hear me talk by myself? Um, I, I asked for comments on the Facebook page and. Um, we got one from our, our great fan, Corey Bend. I asked how uh, what people's thoughts were on the games and if their opinions have changed on this team. Corey says, still the it's early phase of the season, but getting the comeback win is huge. The difference in our out- outlook at 2-1 and one compared to how things would have looked at 1-2 and two is big. We would have been trailing the Vikings and Lions and been two behind Atlanta with the tiebreaker against us. With the win, none of that is true. That said, this still looks like a deeply flawed team. The next three weeks will be very telling, and I'm eager to see how these guys respond on Thursday. If they steamroll the Bears and can get at least a split on the road against the Vikings and Cowboys, they're in decent shape. If they struggle against the Bears and leave Dallas at 3-3 or worse, this will look like another year where 10-6 and and a divisional round loss is the best we can hope for. I tend to agree with you, Corey. Um, Man, this team, they just can never get lucky with injuries, and I think... I, I don't have any expectations against them or with them against the Bears, potentially with new people starting on the offensive line. That's that's tough, and I really don't know if they're going to be capable of putting together these like a dominant performance against the, the Bears. Luckily for the Packers, the Bears are completely torn apart too, particularly on defense. And so for the second year in a row, we're going to have the same color rush unis between the same teams and the same stadium in roughly the same week, and both teams are similar levels of injure, uh, injured. So forget about oversaturating in ratings. You're, you're getting your teams killed with these quick turnarounds, and by week four, everybody's already heard anyways. It's just a weird situation that that would end up being that way two years in a row. Um, as far as your assessment that they're probably, um, that these next weeks are going to be telling, I think I agree with you, but also I'm still a little bit in the wait and see mode because yesterday's game reminded me a lot of the week two game against the Jets in 2014, where they fell down 21 to three, made a comeback, uh, very similar, won 31 to 24 over the Jets. And then in week three, went out to Detroit and had one of the worst offensive games they've ever had under Mike McCarthy. Started one and two. And then, of course, we got the, the RELAX the next week um, and then played the Bears. So maybe maybe they will have the offensive explosion. But it's so hard in these first three weeks, particularly with this Packers team, they seem to almost mean nothing. And it means a lot to win the games. But beyond winning the games, I'm not sure what to take from any of these. You need to win the game so you can put yourself in a position to go on a run uh, and get a one or two seed without having to be perfect in the second half of the season. So you can't be like three and five or last year like four and six. That's putting yourself in too big of a hole. Um, even at three and three, I think they potentially have a shot, but then again, at three and three, you're basically looking at a nine and one 
final 10 games of the season to have a realistic shot at a one or two seed. So you would like to see them. They, they got to beat the bears. And I think if you have to lose one of the next two, you'd rather lose to Dallas than to the Vikings with uh, kind of Dallas's struggles and, and tougher schedule that could potentially happen this year. So if you can win those two divisional games, I don't even care if you crawl through them and win ugly. I think that's more important. And then you can start getting healthy and put yourself in a position to play your best football and still have enough wins in the bank to get a really good seed in the NFC. And as we were talking, Omade Mousley commented as well. And he says, while it was an exciting win, I'm pushing the panic button. I know it's early in the year, but the defense's mentality of we'll put in an effort in the fourth quarter might work with bad teams, but will fail with the better teams in the league. See the Atlanta game. It's great to see Aaron rack up all these accomplishments and memorable plays. 300 touchdowns last week and now beating all the 31 other teams and his first OT win. Great accolades for an absolute legend. Hopefully they'll bounce back on Thursday night football, beat the Bears, and take the lead in the rivalry, which will give us the lead in all of our divisional rivalries. There's a lot in there, and I'm glad that you got that in before the podcast ended, Omad, because there is a ton of good stuff in there, and some of it that I forgot about. The fourth quarter effort is a good point because as well as the Packers played in the fourth quarter yesterday, they got incredibly lucky that the drive that the Bengals had that led to a field goal stalled because Joe Mixon and Andy Dalton screwed up in the backfield and I believe Morgan Burnett was able to make the tackle. If that doesn't happen and that drive continues, there might not be enough time for Aaron Rodgers to come back and tie the game. So they got incredibly lucky in the fourth quarter. They dominated and then right when the game was on the line and they needed a big stop, that's when they let the Bengals go on a bit of a drive and then got lucky somewhat and, uh, uh, and we're able to hold them to a field goal. So I'm glad you brought that up because that was something that was a little bit troubling to me is that it, it seems like we've seen this a lot with this defense, that they can shut down teams forever, and then when they need to finally kick the door closed, they aren't able to do it. And uh, that certainly was looking like it was going to happen yesterday, and then uh, they got a little bit of a answered prayer with Dalton and uh, Mixon screwing up. Aaron Rodgers beating all 31 other teams. I'm glad you mentioned that as well. I couldn't find a list of other quarterbacks that had done that. I assume like your guys that played forever, like Elway and Marino, I'm, I'm sure they had done it. Peyton Manning and Favre, to my knowledge, are the only guys that have beaten all 32 teams. And I, I got to believe that Brady and Breeze have beaten all uh, 31 other teams. And I would expect Breeze has a chance to have beaten all 32 as well because he beat the Saints with the Chargers in 2004 and then I believe he beat the Chargers last year so um, yeah rarefied air for Aaron Rodgers that's the mark of a really good quarterback that you can play long enough to have played all 31 other teams and then have beaten them and then Mike McCarthy um, also has done that because him and Rodgers together were 0-2 in their limited opportunities against the Bengals. And the taking the lead in the rivalry. I'm so glad you brought that up because I had completely forgotten about that. The Packers have been fighting since 1933 to uh, to take the lead in this rivalry. They pulled even for the first time since 33 last year with that um, breathtaking late game bomb from Aaron Rodgers to Jordy Nelson in a 27 all game to set up the game winning field goal. And so, yeah, they got to win now. E- even if the Bears came back and inexplicably tied it at Soldier Field later in the year to say we have seen something that nobody has seen in 
almost 90 years would be really, really fun. So hopefully the Packers are able to uh, pull together whatever healthy bodies they have and beat the Bears. So thank you, Corey. Thank you, Omade, for those comments. And before we wrap up, I wanted to address kind of the elephant in the room, and that is the ongoing controversy um, regarding Donald Trump's remarks about the people that have been protesting during the national anthem. I love to talk about politics. I love talking about politics as much, if not more, than I like talking about football. But I also like there being places where you can just talk about things that don't matter, like football, and just let yourself get lost in it. And for that reason, I'm going to let my football show be about football and let you go seek out information and opinions on that elsewhere. I certainly have my own opinions. You have your own opinions. Everybody is entitled to their own opinions. My opinion is my football show is going to be about friggin' football. All right, with that said, if you want to hear more about some friggin' football, you can go listen to our complete archives in a number of different locations. First of all, on the Podbean page, Green Gold Forever, that's the number four, dot podbean.com is our website. In addition to blogs about various subjects on NFL history and stats and Packers and things of that nature, you can get our archives all the way back to 2012. I love to listen to podcasts on the go, and there's uh, two really good ways to do that for uh, Green and Gold Forever. Uh, you can do so on the Podbean app where you can hear our complete archives on the go. So follow us on the Podbean app, download that, and follow us on there. And also the iTunes app, you can listen to us on there. Uh, If you subscribe to us, please consider rating and reviewing the show as well. And we have uh, dozens of our old episodes on that. And also we are available on Facebook, Green and Gold Forever Podcast, or on Twitter at Green Gold Forever. That's the number four. I, I don't know if you've heard that about um, some of our locations. That's the, that's the number four. All right, so just four days after beating the Cincinnati Bengals, the Green Bay Packers will be at Lambeau Field again to take on the Chicago Bears. And uh, we were a little bit worried about the color rush when that first happened, but the all-white Green Bay Packers uniforms were a big hit, and uh, me and Matt in particular are very very picky about our uniforms. So if the Packers have a winner, that that must be good things. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to see the color rush uniforms again. A little worried about the game because of, again, how many injuries there are in the offensive line, but hopefully they can continue to make adjustments. And much like last year, they found a way to win with a ton of injuries against the Bears on Thursday night football. And the Bears themselves have a ton of injuries in the front seven. And, um, you know, even with the backup offensive line for the Packers perhaps they'll be able to keep Aaron safe and upright so I'm not even really worried about them looking dominant I just want them to get a win and then have 10 days to get healthy and then go into some big games against Dallas and the Vikings so hopefully we see that and thank you so much for joining me tonight and uh, you know listening to me talk by myself I know sometimes that can be difficult uh, for me but hopefully you found some things that are interesting and uh, keep contributing to the show. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And hopefully the Packers will have another victory. And next time we talk, they will be three and one. Take care, everyone.